The wilderness or isolation dilemma. Where does one turn to for life in the wilderness or in the isolation? Does one look to create life or turn to the one of life who has his very existence in the wilderness, in the isolation? To create life or to turn to eternal life? This is the dilemma right now for everyone around the globe. We all have an opportunity of a lifetime right now, but there is a war between self and the spirit for life in this period of isolation, the wilderness. Where will you turn? What will you do? What are you turning to? How will you cope? Can you be still? Will you create your own life or look to eternal life for life? Being put in the wilderness or isolation exposes and reveals what is or isn't in us. What people see as abundance, self, one's ability to create, is absolute lack and a substitute or a replacement for real life. When the illusion of abundance, self, is put into the wilderness or isolation, it gets exposed for what it truly is, lack. It is made aware of what it truly has, nothing. It doesn't know where to turn or look because there is no self in the wilderness or isolation. The wilderness isolation has nothing that is man-made in it. It is stripped of anything fleshly and anything created by man for his sensual pleasures. The wilderness is a barren and desolate place when viewed through the lens of self, the flesh. But wait, there is incredible good news to be found here. There are three things that exist in the wilderness or in the isolation. Number one, God. Number two, those followers whose habitation is the wilderness. And three, the enemy. Self-isolation, being placed into the wilderness, is an absolute gift by God right now to discover Him as our first. It is also an opportunity to be in fellowship with those who know Him as their first as well. They are waiting for you. Will you gather and be found discovering Him and one another in the wilderness at this time, in what the Scriptures declare as true fellowship and not companionship? Will we use this time to be transformed and realize the people of God inhabit and have their being in isolation, the wilderness? We see the enemy from Scripture is also in the wilderness. What is he doing in the wilderness? The enemy's role is to tempt us away from the life that is concealed for us in the wilderness. He looks for any flesh that is in the wilderness with him to lie to, to deceive and to tempt into thinking there is nothing of life there. And he whispers to us that we must create our own life if we want life in the wilderness as a temporary measure until we can return to the way things were. On the other hand, God tests us, placing us in the wilderness, the isolation, to see if we will turn to him and those in him in the wilderness for our life and be set free from self and self's ways that attempt to create life for itself through its own strength. What will self or flesh do? Will it allow the voice of the enemy to tempt it to try to create life in the wilderness, the isolation? Or will it recognize and acknowledge its absolute lack and complete inability to create eternal life? Will it acknowledge its absolute need for dependency on him for eternal life and find true spiritual repentance, not remorse but repentance, and turn towards the one who is life for life? The isolation or wilderness will expose us for our abundance or our lack. Self-isolation is an absolute gift by God right now to discover Him as our first. For those in abundance, it's an opportunity for more. For those in lack, it's an opportunity to turn and start afresh. May we all take this opportunity we have been given now. Encourage those around you in abundance and lack to take this gift with both hands and allow it to propel you into his presence where his power resides. It's his power that creates the abundance eternal life in us, not man's wisdom, temporal life. God's power creates an eternal life in us. Man's wisdom creates a temporal life in us. Which one do we desire and seek? 
And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 The wilderness, the place of abundance. One of the greatest mistakes we make as God's people is to carry a conviction of belief that the wilderness is a place of dryness, barrenness, desolate, parched, lifeless, empty, and lacking anything of life. This convictional belief can't be any further from the truth when it comes to God, and yet as stated, it is a belief that I have heard come out of the mouths of many followers. We say things like, I am having a wilderness experience or a desert experience, and the context for these statements are one of despair, destitute, and death. We believe this because we haven't yet had our eyes opened by the Spirit and discovered the incredible life that is directly in front of us. We are no different to the Israelites who couldn't see the eternal life that was directly in front of them when they were in the wilderness of Zin, the temporal place. I have incredibly good news for you if you believe the wilderness is a place of nothingness and have made it your mission in life to avoid the wilderness at any cost. There is an abundance of life to receive come into and live from in the wilderness. Numbers 20, 1-11 Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come out from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting, and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, And Moses and Adam gathered the assembly before the rock. He said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. Questions for us to consider. Where did Moses bring the water forth from? What is the object where the water came out a foreshadowing of. Why did the people assemble themselves against Moses and Aaron? Have you ever done this and maybe never even realized it? What lens were the Israelite people looking through in the wilderness? How did the Israelites get access to the water? Why is it important we look to God and others to help us access the life in the wilderness? The wilderness, the place of abundance too. Following on from the first part of the wilderness being a place of abundance, I want us to look at Isaiah 43, 18-21. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the fear will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I have formed for myself will declare my praise. Isaiah teaches the Israelites not to call to mind the former things of the past or to ponder the things of the past. Why is this the case? Because of what God is about to do. 
God has been doing, is doing, and is about to do a new thing in the hearts and minds of all his followers today. If we will let go of the former things of our past. Luke said to receive new wine, one must stop drinking the old wine, which is good enough. The things of the past have got us this far, but they are not enough to take us beyond our current reality. The old wineskin, which contains the old wine, is out of date for the new work God is doing today. We need a brand new wineskin to receive the new wine. This new work which produces this new wine is just this, new. We don't have a reference point for it yet. We don't have a revelation of it yet. This is a brand new dimension in Christ that is concealed from us, but for us, and it is discovered in the wilderness, the unseen, but seen dimension. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. A mistake that I've seen consistently made in the body of Christ is to judge and discern this new wine through the reference for the things of the past, the former things. When we try to fit the new wine, which we are hearing, into an old wineskin, we will find ourselves rejecting, denying, deflecting, ignoring, or walking away from what we are hearing. We may even attack it, because the spirit of pride within us cannot understand what we are hearing. So we say to ourselves, this isn't of God. The new wine comes from a place we don't expect. The new wine also comes forth from a person or a people we don't expect. I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Question, why do the beasts, the jackals and the ostriches of the field glorify him? The answer, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert? Only the Father can produce this reality and dimension. Out of nothing comes something. Out of what is not comes what is. This is the wisdom of God. God gives this water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to supply his chosen people with living water to drink. From receiving this living water that comes forth from the wilderness, the desert, as his chosen people, we will declare his praise. This incredible living water is only found in the one and the place called the wilderness. The wilderness, the place of abundance, three. This may surprise us all, but there is an eternal purpose for why God leads us into the wilderness. God is so in love with us and so intent on bringing his beloved creation into the life he has predestined for her that he took Israel and he takes the church out of their version of himself and just like he placed them in the wilderness, he places us into the same place to reveal our true heart state and for us to depend on him. Deuteronomy 8 is a profound chapter of life and describes what the Father has been doing for the last 10 years in our family called The Rock. Let's have a look at what God has been doing in the hearts of the people who call The Rock their church family. Deuteronomy 8, 1-3 All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God has been speaking to us profoundly over the years about whether we are able to keep the two commandments, which all the law and the prophets hang on. God commands us to do something we can't do in our own strength. Just like the Israelites couldn't keep the Ten Commandments because they weren't empowered by the Spirit, neither can we unless we are empowered by the Spirit. The problem that the Israelites faced, and that we also face, is that in not being able to keep these commandments, we are not able to enter into life that sits behind the commandments, accessing and possessing the life the Father has promised us, and eternal life in His Son. Because of this reality, God has to lead us into a place we have not been before, 
to perform a very deep work in our hearts. This place isn't the place we would naturally choose to go from our own free will. So he leads us there so we can all receive what he has for us. Things in God are never as they appear. Here are the reasons why God leads us into the wilderness. Firstly, to humble us, to create in us a spirit of humility. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. This is the first beatitude. Secondly, to test us. God needs us to see what's in our hearts. God takes us into the wilderness as a time of the heart being uncovered for what's truly there. He tests us to see if we can keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 3-6 Thirdly, he lets us be hungry. God takes us to the wilderness to starve us of the current food we are eating. Food we trust in, but food which perishes. Fleshly food which doesn't produce an eternal life. He takes us there to humble us and make us aware of our true need for true food. Four, he gives us food. It's in the wilderness that God starts to give us the food we need to live as Christ and receive all of the life that is in Christ. This is the food we need to be able to keep the two commandments, the great commandments. It's a food that we and our forefathers have never eaten before. Only the Father can give this food. And fifth, he makes us understand through the Father giving us this food, we come to the realization that we do not and cannot live on bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the word of the Lord. This is the process we must all be in and follow as this is the only way. If we want the incredible life, which verses 4 to 18 speaks of. The Israelites never entered into the life in the promised land because they did not heed what God taught them. And we too will be the same if we don't heed his voice, his living word. We must live the way we are commanded to live if we are to access and possess all that is in Christ for us. God inhabits the wilderness. Acts 7, 30-31 After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of the burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. Where did the angel appear to Moses? In the wilderness. The spiritual eternal life is never where we expect it to be, and it is never in whom we expect it to be in. The voice of the Lord came forth from the burning bush in the wilderness. Where Moses encountered the Lord was on the drier side of the mountain. It wasn't in the lush green fields where there was much vegetation and life. No, it was in the driest, most barren part of Mount Horeb. Horeb means desert or mountain of the dried up ground. What does this tell us about the wilderness and where we can expect to find God and God speaking? In Matthew 4, we see Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now to the natural eye, one would say, what on earth is the Spirit doing? leading Jesus to a place where the devil is waiting for him to tempt him out of who he is and the Father's will for him. What are you thinking, Spirit? This is all a master setup. Not a setup for Jesus, but a setup for the devil. Remember where God lives? In the wilderness, the very same place the Spirit was leading Jesus. So let's look at who is now in the wilderness. We have the Father, Son and Spirit and the devil. Not an even match really now, is it? And to think Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit as well. What a divine setup this is. The triune God in the wilderness with the devil to show the devil just how much he is defeated and how victorious the Father, Son and Spirit are. The devil goes in there with his A-game thinking deception, lies and temptation will be the downfall of Christ and yet comes out with his tail between his legs. He then perceives Jesus may be weak after the fasting of natural food for 40 days, but he is completely unaware that Jesus is full of eternal food. He is full when he went in, and he was full when he came out. Why? Because Jesus, like the Father and the Holy Spirit, is the representation of the wilderness.
They are the wilderness and they inhabit the very thing they are. They are the food source of the wilderness. The enemy's ploy was to deceive Jesus in areas of identity, doing his own will, testing of the Father, and in whom he would worship and serve. All these attempts and efforts were futile and ultimately powerless because the one who he came up against was full of eternal life that is discovered in the wilderness. This is to be our exact reality as well. There is no battle between us and Satan when all come into eternal life that is discovered in the triune God, the wilderness. We just live out the victorious life in Christ, even though he dances around us, doing all he can to deceive, tempt, lie and distract us from entering the wilderness, inhabiting the wilderness and receiving all our food from the wilderness. All his efforts fall to the ground when the eternal life is abiding in us. Jesus is a type of wilderness. As we have been looking at in the previous resource, God inhabits the wilderness, and the wilderness is a place of extreme abundance of life and vitality. It's not like many have thought and possibly still think that it is a place of barrenness, and it is with this in mind that we look at Jesus Christ himself as a type of wilderness. Jesus is the eternal life, and he brought his eternal life with him. But the temporal world and all those of the temporal world did not know him. This world includes all of mankind, including us. John 1 verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The eternal life is just that, eternal. The eternal life and eternal kingdom is an unseen life and kingdom to the temporal, earthly realm. Jesus himself was a type of wilderness. He was seen by some and completely unseen to others. Hebrews 11.27 By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, but he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Jesus Christ himself is the physical manifestation of a type of wilderness dimension, unseen and unknown to many, while being seen and fully known by others. Those who truly know the unseen one, the wilderness, know the eternal life that is contained within this eternal vessel and know how to access the abundant life he gives. John 17.3 This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The physical, natural, temporal kingdom has no way of hearing, seeing, understanding or accessing this eternal life through its wisdom, known as the wisdom of man. Human learning and the acquiring of information or knowledge of the scriptures through the intellect is human wisdom. It is this wisdom that says the wilderness is a place of dryness, lifelessness, empty, barren and desolate. Why? Because it is not capable of seeing the incredible abundant life that stands directly in front of it. Jesus was constantly faced with this dilemma by everyone in his life the entire time. Why did Jesus have to ask his disciples who he was after they had already declared that they found the Messiah. Why did the disciples pretty much never hear what Jesus was saying when he spoke? Why did the disciples for most part in the Gospels act completely the opposite way to how Jesus taught them? Why can we today be exactly the same as Jesus' disciples were back then? Because we too, just like them, apply man's wisdom when it comes to hearing, seeing, understanding, and attempting to access all of the eternal abundant resource that is in the one who is a type of wilderness. But this doesn't have to be the case. When we completely surrender the operating systems of man and allow our will to fall upon the rock and be smashed into pieces, we start asking the Holy Spirit to engrave his word on our hearts through revelation. We find ourselves starting to access all of the hidden manna that is concealed and contained in the one who is a type of of wilderness. A disciple of Christ is a type of wilderness. In the previous food source, I shared with us that Jesus himself is a type of wilderness. He was and is eternal life, and this eternal life is not of or from earth, but an entirely different sphere and dimension called heaven. The people of God called the church, the body of Christ, are to be just as he was on the earth. 1 John 4, 17. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. 
Jesus himself is a type of wilderness, and Jesus said he would build his church upon the revelation of himself. All this building work takes place on the inside of us as his disciples, firstly in our hearts and secondly in our minds, while at the very same time this can occur simultaneously as one is work of the entire spirit. The predestined eternal purpose or calling for every disciple is to be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Disciples of Jesus who make up Jesus' body, those whom God foreknew, are being conformed to the image of the Son through the process of sanctification and in doing so have become also a type of wilderness because they have become Christ-like. Luke 6 verse 40, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. This is the entire process of the formation of spiritual oneness, no longer separated from Christ, but one with God. This is what true fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit is, no longer Christ and man, but man's life is now hidden in Christ. The two have become one, and in so doing, disciples of Jesus have become a type of wilderness. Colossians 3 verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. John seventeen twenty one, That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Can we hear and see how both these passages are intertwined in the Spirit? Colossians says our lives are hidden with Christ, who is in God. Jesus says in John that the Father is in him, and he is in the Father, and his prayer is that all disciples would be in them. If our lives are hidden with Christ, and Christ is in the Father, then where are we? Let me put it this way. If the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in the Father, and we are in Christ, then we are we. Disciples who are in this posture of spiritual oneness, fellowship, not relationship, but fellowship, are disciples who live in and live from the eternal life, the wilderness, because they have become one with the type of wilderness, Jesus Christ. What type of church would we see on the earth if every disciple was a type of wilderness, the unseen? John the Baptist is a type of wilderness. As we look at in previous messages where Jesus and his disciples of Jesus are a type of wilderness, so is John the Baptist. John was of the Levitical priestly line and was considered the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. And yet he was not found in the temple like all the other priests. He could be found in the wilderness proclaiming the word of the Lord. Matthew 3, 1-3 Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What is a priest of the Levitical line doing out in the wilderness when he should be in the temple preparing the sacrifices unto the Lord? He is preparing sacrifices unto the Lord all right, but not like those of the temple. His preparation is in the preaching of the word about the one who is coming to cleanse the world of all of its sin. Everything about John was foreign to the normality of the priests who prepared the temple sacrifices and offerings. His choice of clothing, a garment made of camel's hair, and his choice of diet, honey and wild locusts reflect to us the wilderness. Matthew 3 verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John was also filled with the Holy Spirit while being in his mother's womb before his birth, and he would be a forerunner before Christ returned, running in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke 1 15 to 17. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elisha 
to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is more evidence of John being a type of wilderness as opposed to being a type of temple or palace priest. Jesus, disciples of Jesus, and John the Baptist are all types of the same kind, the wilderness. Jesus was born in the wilderness. I want to start by asking us all a question which I hope will have us considering a reality and dimension in Christ we may not be awake to. My hope is that all of this eternal food which is given will stir us towards having our minds renewed to being in him. Question, where was Jesus born? Luke 2.12 This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Kings are not born in inns and they are not born in stables. Kings are not laid in mangers. Kings are not placed in a trough used to feed animals. What are you talking about? Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, didn't come out of Nazareth, did he? Because as Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a very small village in this time, with not a lot happening within it. Interestingly enough, Nazareth today is a large city in the northern district of Israel, which is known as the Arab capital of Israel. How fascinating is all of this, that the king of all kings wasn't born in a luxury or a palace, or the luxury of an empire like kings of the world. He wasn't born in the most modern day, state-of-the-art birthing unit, which today's kings are born in, wrapped in the finest of linens. I mean, can you imagine any of the English monarchy being born in an inn, a stable, or being laid in a trough that is used to feed their horses? I don't think so. And yet this is where our Lord and Saviour, the one and only beloved Son of Almighty God, was found. What is all this telling us about God? God is never found in where we think he is. He is never where we expect him to be. And look, is God a burning bush? No, but this is where his presence was found by Moses and on the most barren and driest part of Mount Horeb. Jesus was born in the dirtiest, smelliest, darkest of environments. He is found in a broken down and decrepit place used to house animals. The Holy Spirit comes into broken down, dirty vessels called humanity, and this is where he makes his home. He makes his home in the broken and contrite heart, not the heart that thinks it has it all together. What am I saying here? Not only was Jesus born in a place you wouldn't expect him to be found, he is also found in the people we don't expect him to be found in. He is not found in the people who live in the temples, but in the people who live and inhabit the wilderness with him. John the Baptist lived and was found in the wilderness. Luke 1 verse 80, And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his prophetic public appearance to Israel. Where did John live? This is a very different picture to where we may have expected to find John the Baptist. What on earth is the greatest prophet of old doing living in the wilderness? The wilderness is John's place of habitation. Really? I find the next passage in Matthew 11, 7-15 extremely fascinating in relation to John being in the wilderness and declaring the eternal gospel in the wilderness. Matthew 11, 7-15 And these men were going away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that John himself is Elijah who was to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I love the question Jesus asked the crowds. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Jesus enlists a number of things. A reed shaken by the wind? Or is it a man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? Jesus is making a massive point about where his prophets, those who are his sent ones, are found. What's even more incredible about all of this is John is not just any prophet, but the greatest prophet of the old, and he is found where? Prophets of God do not live in king's palaces, wearing king's clothes and eating king's food. They are not found living and having their habitation in the man-made religious systems and institutions, but they do visit from time to time to bring them the word of God in the hope that all those who are living in and from the man-made religious institution and system will get set free through the hearing of the word. No, they are in the desert, the wilderness, wearing clothing appropriate for the wilderness and eating food that's appropriate for the wilderness. This is where John was found and lived his life from. The food he ate and the clothing he wore was supplied to him from the wilderness. There was nothing man-made about where he lived, the clothes he wore or the food he ate. Question for us all, what do you think all of this means for us? One would have thought God would have set the greatest prophet of the Old Testament up in the flashiest temple. And this is where he would have lived from and given his powerful message of preparing the way for the coming Messiah. But no, this was furthest from the truth. All the people who lived in the man-made religious institutions would have to go out into the wilderness if they wanted to hear the word of the Lord. Question, what is God communicating to us from this truth? Verse 15 is such a key to all this. Do you have spiritual ears to hear what Jesus is saying here? John the Baptist lived and received the word in the wilderness. John 3 verse 1 to 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God is often found in a place where one would least expect to find it. The word of God is also found in the person which we would not expect either. I love the fact that God always does the opposite to what man does. Where man thinks he will find the word and in whom is pretty much always contrary to where God's word is discovered and in whom it is discovered. This is exactly the case here. We see the list of the who's who of the day. To put this into our context, this would be like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Vladimir Putin, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Pope and his Cardinal, all these people being in one place and then hearing the word of the Lord came to a guy named John. They would all look to one another and say, who on earth is John? The flesh in us never recognizes the spirit. And because of this, we are always looking for his word in the wrong place and in the wrong people. God chooses the place which to the natural or the flesh looks barren, dry, empty and void of life. And he chooses the people who have no credentials, don't have it all together, very little following, nobody's to most, but somebody to someone. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 11. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, but in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Your ability to receive the life that is in this food source called the wilderness will be based on your ability to hear and see in the Spirit. If you attempt to know and understand what is being shared through the flesh, you will find yourself rejecting the spiritual food. The words I am speaking and the imagery I am sharing are spiritual words and spiritual thoughts. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Are you truly open to where and who God chooses to place and declare his word? Would you and are you humble enough to receive it from the place you would never have considered? And are you humble enough to receive it from the one you never would have chosen? I hope we all are, as this tends to be the place and the vessels that God chooses to confuse the so-called wise and to bring forth his truth. The question I leave us with is, why does God place his word in the wilderness and in people who are a type of wilderness? Followers of the wilderness, followers of the temple. We're going to look at and discuss the difference between being a follower of the wilderness and a follower of the temple. As previously stated, I am speaking of spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. So I pray you will be able to hear what is being spoken through the Spirit. Otherwise, you will probably hear the complete wrong thing and disregard what the Spirit is wanting to reveal in and to us. This is a very real reality today in the church, his body, and it always has been. Although we are of the same people, we are not all of the same kind. We are supposed to be, and it is God's heart and intent we will be. But this, unfortunately, doesn't mean we are. It is the purpose of God we would be one, but this doesn't make this automatic reality, and sadly, it isn't. Just like the 12 leaders who went in to spy out the promised land and were all of the same people group, they were not all of the same kind. Two of those leaders, Caleb and Joshua, were of a different kind. They were wholeheartedly abandoned to God, his word, his purpose, and his plan, because they had lost their lives and were no longer living for themselves, while the others were of a different kind. The problem today is that those who are temple followers have no idea they are, and genuinely think and are wholeheartedly convinced they are in Christ, when in fact their lives don't reflect this truth. These temple followers have a form of godliness, but do not live a life of godliness. These followers know how to answer all the questions correctly and say all the right things. But when it comes to living the right way or righteously walking in the manner which Jesus walked, they are unable. Many of these temple followers have been raised with Christianity, but unfortunately not raised in Christ. God loves all of his people, but not all of his people live for the Father's will. Firstly, when I speak about being a follower of the wilderness and being a follower of the temple, I'm not referring to a physical building or place, but a heart posture and a mindset in a person. Our hearts and minds can either be of the spirit, the wilderness, the unseen, the promised land, the eternal realm, or the flesh temple, the seen, the world, the temporal realm. Although Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt physically, and Egypt is a physical typology of the world, Egypt was still fully established within them. Hence their disobedience to God and Moses in the physical wilderness was incredible. This is what kept them all, bar two people, entering the physical promised land. Freedom is not on the external, but on the inside, in our hearts and minds. Plenty of people live in freedom on the outside, but in their hearts and minds, they are in bondage. The question I want to pose to us all is, which one are we of? Which one do we inhabit and relate to? Which one are we eating from? Which one are we hearing and seeing from? Which one do we spend our time, energy, priorities and resources in and on? Which one are we living from and for? Although these are confronting questions, we must ask them of ourselves. Otherwise, we run the risk of thinking we are in a reality we in fact aren't. I can't think of anything worse than to think you are in something you really aren't and live from this form of blindness or deception. We have looked at Jesus, his disciples, and John the Baptist all being a type of wilderness, a type of the unseen but seen realm, where an abundance of life exists called the promised land, the eternal life in Christ. The natural or flesh has no reference for the spiritual dimension, and it is from this posture I want to discuss the difference between what it means to be a follower of the wilderness and a follower of the temple. Buckle up, because this promises to be a bumpy ride, but I promise us all 
that if we will truly enter into our spiritual act of worship, which is the laying down of our lives, completely surrendering every part of us, the Spirit of God will come and engrave the Word of God on all of our hearts so we all can live the way of the kingdom wholeheartedly. Wilderness followers abide in Christ, while temple followers only incorporate Jesus into their lives. There is a real difference between the follower who abides in Christ and the follower who has only incorporated Jesus into their life. One knows and has Christ as their literal source, while the other only knows him as their resource. One cannot know or have the Father as their source until they have fully surrendered to God, and you can't surrender to a God you don't really know or how right you have been made with. To only know Christ as your resource is to still have you or self as the source of your life, and this is a very limiting and crippling reality. Although one doesn't really know God or know how right they have been made in God, they can still use the gift he has given them to see things happen in their lives and in the lives of others. This position is very deceptive and one we must all be made aware of. This becomes a problem because the prerequisite for abiding life in Christ with God as your source requires you to have lost your life. John 12, 23-26 and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If someone serves me, the Father will honor him. So instead of operating from fellowship, oneness of spirit with God, you operate from the gifting, function, outcomes of what you are going to do for God. If we have invited Christ into our lives for what he can do for us, then we only have incorporated him into our lives, and this position cannot deny itself. Only those who have lost their lives through fully surrendering their lives have the power of the Spirit working within them to now deny oneself. This is the follow of the wilderness position and posture in Christ because he has become the source of this person's life. One is able to fully love God and mankind the way God commands us to because one has received the all-encompassing and overwhelming life of the Spirit. This position also has coming forth from it the predestined works of the Spirit. Four questions for us to consider. Why is the incorporated position so dangerous to a follower of Christ? What does this incorporated position limit you to? How powerful is the abiding in Christ as your source position? What life does this position produce in us? Wilderness followers abide in Christ while oneness is only discovered when we are in him. What we have just looked at is incorporating Jesus into our lives or having Christ as our life. We shared about the difference between them and that followers of the temple have only incorporated Jesus into their lives as opposed to followers of the wilderness where Jesus has become their very life. These are two positions and because they are two, there is not spiritual oneness occurring between these followers, which means these followers live for different things. They can look very similar to the natural eye, but in reality, they are as far apart from one another as north is from south. This doesn't mean God doesn't love both groups of followers, but the difference between the two groups causes them to be living for different things. As mentioned, the deception is in the fact that they can look like they are the same, but in heart and mind, the place of life and understanding, they are completely opposite. The temple follower is still ultimately living for self and the operating systems of self while looking like they are living for God and genuinely believing they are. The wilderness follower, on the other hand, has died with Christ and their life is hidden in God. They are only interested in the Father's will, period. This difference ultimately causes completely different lifestyles, which can be the cause of division between these two groups. 
The difference can cause persecution, jealousy, bitterness, hurt, offense, resentment, anger, insecurity, and ultimately division by the temple followers towards the wilderness followers because they have no understanding of the why they are the way they are. Why is this the case? Because those of the wilderness can't go back to being a temple follower and living from the temple ways. They have to pursue the one who is a type of wilderness because they have become one with him. This causes them to make decisions and prioritize life in a way that becomes offensive to the temple follower. They are not trying to offend anyone, but be faithful to the one they are one with. In fact, they desire all of the temple followers to surrender up and lose the temple heart and mindset and come and be one with them and Christ. Conformity is the opposite of spiritual oneness, and it is conformity that the temple follower lives from and towards. Temple followers attempt to make God and his words conform to their reality. Conformity is the counterfeit to spiritual oneness, and it is the demonic version of oneness. Conformity tries to achieve spiritual oneness through function. Conformity comes up with a common goal, which it can achieve through spiritual and natural giftings and abilities, and gets everyone on board by getting everyone to work together for the good of the common goal. Now, there is nothing wrong with achieving a common goal when the Holy Spirit has led and is empowering this work. But this is not oneness of spirit, nor does it produce oneness of spirit. It just produces the success of a common goal. Only the human word of God and receiving the word of God, which is spirit, engraved on the human heart by the spirit, causes spiritual oneness or fellowship. Unfortunately, this is why these two groups exist. For the followers of the wilderness, there is a very regular occurrence and form spiritual oneness between God and themselves. While for temple followers, they are still to come into this operating system of the spirit through relinquishing their fleshly ways and so remain as temple followers, which is not supposed to be the case. Jesus prayed for spiritual oneness in John 17. John speaks and invites us to have the spiritual oneness with him and the triune God. Can you give testimony to this oneness with him and others? It is the promise of your heavenly father for his body. Galatians 6, 7-8 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh he reaps corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Four questions for us to consider. What has stood out the most for you from what you have just heard? What position do you resonate with the most? Oneness of Spirit or conformity? Why is conformity so dangerous in the body of Christ? Which posture do you relate to the most and why? Wilderness followers know how to access the eternal food in the wilderness. Wilderness followers know how to access the eternal food source that is in the wilderness or the unseen realm. The unseen realm is a very real and tangible realm called the spiritual kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus said, repent because my kingdom is at hand. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, and yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The unseen realm is a handshake away from us all. And as we reach out to Christ and take his hand, he not only leads us into this unseen seen dimension, he gives us the eternal food that exists in this dimension. This is the food which builds his life in us and eternal life. John 6, 27. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. All of our outer external bodies are decaying, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, 
But because wilderness followers know how to access this eternal food source in the unseen seen realm, their inner man is being renewed day by day. And this inner man enables and empowers our outer man to demonstrate a Christ-like life now. Romans 8.11 But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's not year by year or week by week, but day by day. This is because this eternal food is available 24-7. Does this sound familiar? Give us this day our daily bread. Who is the bread of life? Temple followers have no reference for this eternal food source, which the bread of life gives, because it is concealed and hidden, and they haven't learned the ways of the spiritual kingdom and how to access this food source. They only have their version of this food, which is acquired through human learning, and it doesn't produce his life in us. We know it's God's glory to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Proverbs 25.2 1 Corinthians 2 also teaches us that God has prepared all he has for those who love him, and that all these things have been given freely to us for those in Christ to know, understand, and live from. The wilderness followers know how to access all this concealed life through the Spirit being their teacher and live in accordance to it. This is what it means to live from the eternal, prophetic, predestined, spoken, written dimension which Jesus was living his life in accordance to. Two questions. How well do we know this unseen, seen dimension? Why is it imperative we know how to access it and the food in it? Wilderness followers share God's word with temple followers. The heart of every wilderness follower is that their brothers and sisters who are temple followers would hear the word of God they declare. Although wilderness and temple followers are of the same people group, they are not of the same kind, the word. And it is the heartbeat and hope of every wilderness follower that the temple followers will receive the word they bring to them. This was Jesus' heart when he entered into the physical temple and he began to read out the book of Isaiah, which declared him to be the Messiah. He was making it very clear who he in fact was and for a moment in time, the religious temple leaders were taken aback by his words of spirit and life. Luke 4.22 And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Just for a moment, things are going well. And then just as quickly as they are going well, they start to take a dive. Jesus continues to declare his father's spiritual word, saying no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And the temple followers who were taken aback by his words are now on the brink of killing him. Luke 4, 28 to 29. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to a brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. We see his own family thinking he has lost his senses and they come to take him away. Mark 3:21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Temple followers really struggle to hear and understand wilderness followers because they try to understand him through the flesh or the mind instead of hearing and understanding through the spirit or the heart. It's the clashing of two kingdoms. What's the carpenter doing in our temple teaching from the prophets? This is our role, not the carpenters. Carpenters should be working in factories or in their workshop, not teaching in the temple. Wilderness followers are seen as nobodies by the temple followers and they don't honour them as a person or honour the gifting and the words they bring. They disregard and dishonour them and so never receive the reward that they bring with them. Hence they remain in their former godliness, always learning but never coming into the knowledge of truth. Heaven groans at this reality but this keeps temple followers and wilderness followers separated as opposed to being of the same kind. 
Why do those who attempt to understand in the mind struggle to hear those who are of the Spirit? Why is humility of the Spirit the key to hearing the Word of God? These are two questions along with all the other questions I encourage you to wrestle with God for because the life that is concealed for us as wilderness followers is extreme and amazing and nothing short of supernatural.